it is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator. Ms. Amanda Chicago Lewis is a journalist who writes on cannabis. She is a columnist for Rolling Stone and has also written for BuzzFeed News, The Wall Street Journal, Vice, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and many other publications. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Amanda Chicago Lewis. Hi, friends. Let's talk about weed. Uh, also, I was not the only person on the panel who noticed there will be beer and wine later, but no joints? What's that about? It's very surprising and frankly quite disappointing. <laughs> so um, I guess I am going to introduce our panelists here, and just to be spicy as I introduce them, I'm going to ask each of them a question. Uh, I have questions for all of us to hear what Everyone thinks that we could talk through in more detail, um, but I thought I would get us started with a little bit of um, specific questions for people. So, to begin, to my right, uh, Dr. Tim Fong is a clinical psychiatrist and the director of the UCLA Addiction Medicine Clinic. He serves on the executive committee at the UCLA Cannabis Research Initiative. So, uh, Dr. Fong, that begs the question, is cannabis addictive and perhaps more importantly, am I addicted to cannabis? Just a quick note, I probably smoke a little bit of a joint every night before I go to sleep, so uh, help. Uh, well, good evening, everybody, and thank you, Amanda, for coming out. Um, I haven't seen your file, so I can't comment on that. Uh, what I can say is I'm a professor of addiction psychiatry, and I've been in LA about 25 years. And in the 90s, it was all about methamphetamine. And in the 2000s, we started to get about opiates, and about Eight years ago, we were starting to talk a lot more about cannabis. I work at UCLA where we see the most severe forms of addiction show up in our emergency room or in our hospital or in our outpatient clinic. So absolutely, uh, in my mind, yes, cannabis can be addictive. But so can tobacco, so can alcohol, video games, gambling, work, exercise. And when I first started working on the UCLA Cannabis Research Initiative with Dr. Jeff Chen, our goal was very simple, not to demonize this, not to put it into a label, but to say, what is the therapeutic potential of cannabis and how do we reduce the harm attached with it? We know through a variety of academic studies that cannabis comes with about a 9% chance of addiction from the first time you start using. Now that sounds really interesting. Is that too high or is that too low? The first time you use, Tobacco products, it's about 25% chance that you will become addicted to tobacco. The first time you eat broccoli, it's not 9% that you're gonna develop an addiction to broccoli. So we know those facts are there. So I think what's the better question isn't, is it addictive, but how do we reduce the risk of addiction? Now how do we raise and elevate the therapeutic potential and solutions that come with cannabis. Gotcha, so what I heard was yes, I am addicted to cannabis, <laughs> yes, I'm also addicted to work, and FYI, I'm also addicted to broccoli. I forgot to tell you that part. Uh, and continuing along on our panel, we have Kat Packer. Kat Packer is the first executive director and general manager of the Los Angeles Department of Cannabis Regulation, and she was previously the California Policy Coordinator for the Drug Policy Alliance. Kat. Things have been very difficult for you. Uh, the process of running cannabis in Los Angeles is a mess, and that's an understatement. We're gonna get into more details about why uh, soon, but 
I want to say this, um, and I think everyone needs to understand this to begin with. When you go around LA and you see cannabis dispensaries, only about one in five of those dispensaries is a legal business. So you see a store, it's a marijuana store. You say, oh, marijuana is legal now. This is obviously a legal business. Newsflash, it is not, okay? And we are moving as quickly as we can to change that situation. And by we, I mean everyone on stage and also lots of other people, but maybe not some other people. And at this point, we're moving so slowly uh, that I want to say, you know, I'm generally not much of a conspiracy theorist, but um, this is starting to feel deliberate, the slowness. Uh, so I want to know, is this just bureaucratic inertia? Uh, or who is benefiting from the status quo, where we have so many illegal businesses and a very small group of legal businesses? Yeah, um, hello, it's uh, great to be with here, here with you all tonight. Uh, the status of California's market and even the city of Los Angeles's market is a product of us just saying no uh, for a very long time. And the first time we say yes, there are all of these questions that need to be answered, and to be honest, uh, many elected officials throughout the state of California resisted this as long as they possibly could. And then when uh, voters back in 2016 passed the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, 57% uh, of voters voted in support of Proposition 64, uh, many elected officials were tasked for the first time with figuring out what to do. Now, California has had legal cannabis since 96, uh, but there were no regulations in place. And you can imagine any industry, particularly for an industry for a substance that can be addictive, uh, not being regulated for a period of two decades, and then a framework being created overnight where there are regulations at the state level, regulations at the local level, <clears throat> and oh, by the way, this is still a Schedule I narcotic uh, in the eyes of the federal government. Uh, the reality is that we're still in a period of time here in the state of California where most local jurisdictions still ban commercial cannabis activity. So that's important uh, as a foundational uh, issue for folks to know that the state of California has legalized cannabis, but the initiative that was passed allowed for local control. So local jurisdictions can completely choose whether or not to ban or allow commercial cannabis activity. Uh, and most jurisdictions throughout the state of California have said, no, we, we don't want to allow particularly retail adult use sales. Uh, the city of Los Angeles passed a local initiative back in 2017 that said that the city for the first time was going to allow for uh, commercial cannabis activity. And then the city was tasked with answering a bunch of questions around how many licenses are going to be available, who's going to be able to get licenses, and part of the challenge that we've had locally is that we've had to spend uh, the, all of 2018 and the greater part of 2019 for the first time transitioning our existing medical market. Uh, these were operators that had never been regulated before. Uh, there was really no infrastructure in the city to deal with acknowledging that cannabis activity was taking place, uh, but folks should be aware that there are a number of levels of bureaucracy that uh, cause challenges for business operators who are trying to get up and running. Uh, and it's been an interesting experience for me because I had not worked in government, 
uh, prior to uh, 2017 when I was appointed by the mayor. Uh, and I have learned uh, the reality of bureaucracy. And it's tough on regulators, but it's in uh, increasingly tough on businesses who are trying to get off the ground for the first time. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get into specific conversations about onerous regulations, about taxes, about the illicit market and how that continues to complicate things. Uh, but I think that there is some intentional resistance uh, by way of elected officials at the local level and the state level. And the reality is, is that we're two years into this. We have to acknowledge that lessons have been learned and there are changes that can still be made to make this process more efficient and more equitable. Right. Thank you. So, you know, just to clarify, I think most people who know Kat know that Kat is doing her best. She was an activist before she took up this um, running of this city department, and it's been a very complicated process, what with the history. And I just want to like, Brad, we're going to get to you, but I want to quickly highlight one or two of the things that she said, um, and also note that you, your answer was essentially both. Yes, we have uh, intractable bureaucracy that's slowing us down, but we do also have some intentional resistance from elected officials that's slowing the process. Uh, and just so to reiterate, right, if you're living in Los Angeles, it's very hard to understand that this is what's been happening. 96, we legalize cannabis, but we're basically only legalizing medical use with the doctor's recommendation, and you can grow a few plants at home. But the entire system of the supply chain, the growing, the stores, all the people that you saw engaging in those businesses up until literally 2018 were committing to a certain extent some form of civil disobedience, okay? Which means 2018 we had nearly 2,000 marijuana stores across the city of Los Angeles, all right? And none of them were operating legally, all right? And now we have almost 200 that are legal. But uh, how those came to be legal and why those came to be legal, that's another story. We'll pause on that. But first, let's get to Brad. Brad. Brad Rowe is a criminal justice and drug policy researcher and is the policy director for the UCLA Cannabis Research Initiative. He also leads cannabis compliance for the government solutions firm's the government solutions firm Avenue Insights. Avenue? Avenue, Avenue Insights. There you go. Yeah, Here's my question for you, Brad. What is the <clears throat> biggest misunderstanding that you've encountered about public policy and cannabis? So what does the public not understand about what good po cannabis policy looks like. Well, thank you for the introduction, and uh, it's so nice to see so many people out here uh, tonight, so thank you for coming. Um, I would say a lot of the misconceptions of public policy I held myself. Um, I have to admit, uh, January 1, you know, right, right, after, right after we legalized, I was like, where are the pot stores? Where are the pot stores? They, they got to be around here somewhere. So. Um, I think that a lot of people thought it was just going to happen like this. Immediately, we turn the spigot on, and there would be this industry there. Um, obviously, that that is not something that uh, that has happened. I think the other side comes from aggressive investors and people who wanted to make money in the green rush. And I think they looked at this thing as the cash cow. A lot of cities looked at it as the cash cow. But I think that the industry, that the money behind it was so hyperinflated and so hot that they were coming in and almost anyone who wasn't saying that the hockey stick projections were true uh, was left in the dust. And so everyone started ramping up and building up factories and building up huge grows. 
without taking into consideration the fact that they were going to need shelf space to sell that product. And I think that, um, you know, this is something that um, Lori Ajax, our, uh, who runs the Bureau of Cannabis Control, has been talking about really from the beginning, this is a five-year process. Right, Lori is the state administrator on the whole cannabis pr and, uh, program. Uh, and so I, I think we're in some ways kind of right on track. Yeah. And uh, I, I would add that, you know, sometimes we look at gymnasts who come out and they're gonna do a routine for the Olympics and we go, what's the degree of difficulty? Oh, she does the, you know, the double Sukahara flip or whatever, you know, that's a 6.5 or whatever, I'm, I'm off on the numbers. But um, I think, and, and this is a shout out to Kat and some of the, some of the guys in, in Oakland and San Francisco and in uh, Sacramento and in other states, in Denver and other places, where they decided that they want to build into the DNA, social equity and other important programs that acknowledge the war on drugs. Well, when you do that, you know, you, it just, it takes time. It takes time to do this right. And the cannabis industry isn't like, we just discovered a new cell phone and we're gonna try and like market those and get them out to market. It's like, there's, there's a history that we have to think about and that, that we have to deal with. And I, I would just acknowledge just sort of the public, uh, the, the public policy conceptions and misconceptions of what it is is vastly different. Uh, it's different here in LA and it's different in small town California, it's different in, I'm from Wisconsin, it's different in Wisconsin. Um, and so I think there's just, there's a learning curve, destigmatization. Uh, we have to teach people that cannabis can be safe and enjoyable, um, but also to have, you know, as Tim was talking about, there are things we need to be cautious about and, and do this responsibly. Thank you, and I just wanna say, um, Brad referenced social equity. It's something you guys will probably hear a lot about once you start paying attention to cannabis policy. Essentially, it's, you could think of it as akin to affirmative action for cannabis. It's essentially attempting to, uh, any program that attempts to acknowledge and account for the uh, disproportionate racial harms of the war on drugs when developing legal cannabis. And that uh, could look a lot of different ways and usually has to do with who gets licenses first in terms of being allowed to sell legal cannabis. Um, so. Quickly, I want to just give us some, some context, you know, for people who maybe aren't uh, up to speed, right? So I cover cannabis on a national level. On a national level, I pay a lot of attention to what's going on in California in particular. I pay a lot of attention to what's going on in Los Angeles in particular. The rest of the country looks at California when they're dealing with cannabis and they say, let's not do that. <laughs> Literally, the feds, when Obama came into office, came up with a policy that essentially had side-eye to the rest of the side-eye to California saying, if you're gonna develop a legal cannabis system, it shouldn't look like California's. That wasn't what it said explicitly, but that was the intention, okay? And within California, Los Angeles is by far the biggest mess. Los Angeles is a disaster. And I think, every, I think everyone on stage would agree, and it's not anyone's fault of the people that are on stage. There are a lot of complicated factors that have led it to be this way. But it's important to know, we are both in the biggest and most important cannabis market in the world, and we are in the most dysfunctional system of all of legal cannabis anywhere, right? And it all comes back to what I was saying before about illegal stores outnumber legal stores, four or five to one, and we're in the process of implementing this very complicated social equity program, uh, which is currently being audited by the mayor. So, I think what I would like us to attempt to explain first, that nearly 200 stores, I think it's what, 189? 
Yes, the 189 stores that are legal. Um, why are those stores legal when the other stores are not? And anyone who wants to, I'll try, I could try to explain it, but I would love to hear if anyone else sure. has an explanation. So when the uh, city of Los Angeles was first trying to create a framework for what its commercialization would look like, uh, there were a group, back up for a second, uh, it's important to know that the city of Los Angeles did not regulate or formally authorize cannabis businesses uh, in the city prior to 2018. Instead, we had this fairly complicated uh, position on cannabis businesses called limited immunity. Uh, limited immunity was essentially uh, a policy where if businesses were following a certain subset of rules and were paying their taxes, if they were ever enforced against, they could pull this limited immunity out of their pocket and say, don't enforce against me, I'm one of the folks who have been following the rules. Right, and so enforcement is the euphemism for the police come and take all of your cash and your product and shut you down. The challenge is that the city historically uh, was not keeping the best records of who had this limited immunity, Among just many put it lightly. Uh, and so as different enforcement actions were taken uh, throughout the city in, in years past, uh, everybody started to have these limited immunity things that they could pull out their pocket and uh, businesses would move and say, no, I have limited immunity. Sure. And, uh, then everybody had uh, limited immunity, and, and then it just became this very difficult uh, patchwork uh, for what things look like. But when, in 2017, uh, there was a conversation that Proposition 64 is likely to pass, the city of Los Angeles was in a position where it absolutely had to do something, or the entire market was going to be illegal on January 1st. Uh, and the scenario that created this circumstance was that the state of California required dual licensure, licensing at the state level on January 1st and licensing at the local level on January 1st. And remember, no one in the city of Los Angeles had a license. All of these folks had limited immunity. And so uh, the local industry corralled together to put an initiative on the ballot. Uh, they were originally measure in and what this group of industry folks were trying to do was to say, there are about 135 of us or so uh, who are supposed to be on this list who have been paying taxes. Let's make it so that we're the only ones uh, who can participate uh, in retail sales. Uh, and that was known as Measure N. Uh, the city council stepped into the process and then there was lobbying going back and forth between trade organizations uh, and essentially there was a compromise that was made through Measure M, this initiative that said, you all aren't going to be the only people uh, who are going to be able to participate in the market, but we are going to grandfather you all in and you all will be the first to get to market. And okay. so that was something that was baked into the initiative itself. Uh, allowing the city to, for the first time, tax, license, and regulate uh, cannabis activity, uh, but that also, before anything happened for anyone else, these businesses were going to be the first to get licensed. All right, let me try and re-say that all in layman's terms. There we go. Okay, 2007, there's illegal stores all over the place. <laughs> the city's like, oh my God, we gotta do something about this. They say, we're gonna pass a moratorium, no more, Marijuana stores are allowed to open. If you want to be legal, come here and put your name on this list. You've got like two months. This is at the end of 2007. That list 
is the list of people, essentially, that are legal today. It is, let's see, first of all, so many problems occurred between 2007 and 2017. A judge said, hey, by the way, this isn't fair. You can't do this like this. You don't get to just say whoever signed up is the legal ones. Uh, you know, uh, let's see. There was, uh, they, they were supposed to allow other people to get on the list. Then they had to stop other people from getting on the list. It was madness for many years. But there was this list of fewer than 200 businesses that were supposed to be slightly more legal than the rest of them, even though they were technically never legal. Mm -hmm. And as Kat just explained, in 2016, 2017, essentially the folks who owned those businesses, which not all the same people who started the businesses in 2007, because they were slightly more legal, they became more valuable. People started spending three, four, five million dollars on a business like that. Okay, so then we start looking at the population of people who own those businesses, also that they're still in operation. So they have good relationships with their local police. Kat, would you disagree with the assessment that the people who have the legal businesses are generally wealthier and whiter than the rest of the population of Los Angeles? Yes. You would disagree? No, I would agree. You would agree, okay. So we're looking at you know who is able to afford these businesses, who is able to keep these businesses running over time? Who's able to escape enforcement? Right, who's able to escape enforcement? And then this, these businesses got together, put pressure on the city by gathering these signatures for this initiative and essentially said, we're the only ones who are going to get to be legal. And so what we're looking at now is, yes, it's a disaster, but I think what Kat was sort of implying was, it could have been worse because those businesses could have been the only legal businesses forever, and we never would have even had a process for other people to apply, let alone a process that is supposed to be designed to help the folks who were most affected by the war on drugs. So it's bad, but it could be a lot worse. Yeah? Yeah, that's something. Brad, do you want to add anything? <laughs> Uh, I, I would. I think it's also uh, important for us to acknowledge the fact that medical marijuana in California was quasi-wreck. Uh, you had guys in lab coats on Venice Beach chasing down tourists saying, do you need a recommendation? Of course. Um, so we went through a long period where I don't think people really had a great respect for the structure of it and were just kind of... But it was, it was laissez-faire in that you know, the Fed said they weren't going to spend money on enforcement. You had these sort of get-out-of-jail-free cards that, that people had self-granted. And um, so we, we were entering into this thing, and the creation of the adult rec market um, was exciting, but a lot of people were saying, we already have it. Yeah. So why, why should someone spend $3 million on a business, set this up, but I can go down? And we're seeing that today. So... The people who drive the market, there's, there's a principle called the Pareto Principle, and I'm going to do my the little... What principle? The Pareto Principle. Pareto. I'm going to do my little econ thing for a second here. So 20% of your consumers drive 80% of the market. Mm -hmm. And your heavy users still drive the market. And guess where your heavy users are getting their pot from? They're not getting it from MedMen. They're getting it from the, the guy on the corner that they've been buying from for 20 years. So this is one of the things that we're going to have to deal with. Uh, we have an illicit market that it is the 800-pound gorilla. And when we set up uh, Prop 64, and that was largely driven, driven by the industry and authored by the industry, um, we ended up with this dual uh, licensing system that Kat talked about, 
Well, most of the cities in LA County are not even licensing yet. And 80% of the cities in the state haven't even started licensing anything. So we're seeing that we don't have places for people to grow or manufacture or distribute or test or buy. And so what we're left with is the system that we had all along, which was this kind of loosey-goosey rec system. And I was telling you guys earlier, I work a lot with smaller to medium-sized cities. Um, a lot of them just don't want to acknowledge the fact that there is an illicit market in their community. I'm like, the people are smoking pot. Where do you think they're getting it from? Right. People think they can ban cannabis right. and the dispensaries will go away, but they're still there. Right. Yeah. All right. So riddle me this. I guess the next logical question here would be, so what? if I go to an illegal dispensary, right? I grew up in New York. I was that teenage girl buying weed from the sketchy drug dealer in the, I mean, it, I regret it, it was weird, what was I doing? But I would get in cars with strangers, there's nothing weird about that, I was 15. So, you know, I was smoking illegal pot for years and years and years, and I was smoking illegal pot up until 2018, because it wasn't legal in Los Angeles. So why does it matter? Does, is there any reason why you should go to a legal dispensary instead of an illegal dispensary? Well, <clears throat> from a physician standpoint, as well as just a citizen of LA, tobacco, alcohol, gambling, movies, food, these are all regulated forms of either substances or entertainment. And I think about cannabis, we divide into either cannabis that we want to consume on a social, recreational, entertainment basis, or cannabis that we want to consume for a medical purpose. Those are two very, very different things. When we look at street data from the feds and DEA and seizures, the cannabis that I grew up with in my generation, that's Gen X, is about 4 to 6% seizure. You sure you're not a millennial? No, um, depends if, if I want to get discounts. All right, all right. <laughs> now, of course, as we now see, because technology has advanced the cultivation of cannabis, the drug seizures, the DEA show that that potency of THC on the streets is somewhere in the order of 12, 14, 15%. We now have the ability and the technology to create THC potency products as high as 80, 90%. So from a science standpoint, that really high potency of THC is arguably either really, really great for the brain or really, really bad. So for me, when I think about this, I want to have the confidence to know that I could walk into a business that's run properly, that's run safely, that I as an adult could put my money down and choose a product off the shelf that says exactly what it's on the label. One of the fascinating parts about all of this is why is this even a thing? Why is there so much demand for cannabis? Again, back to our broccoli store. If we wanted to open up a series of broccoli stores, we'd be out of business in probably about two months. Intravenous broccoli, <laughs> smokable broccoli. It's not going to work. It's the cannabis, and the interest in cannabis is phenomenal. It's always been there. But we're putting the cart way before the horse, and I think that's the real struggle that I have, that the enlisted market, the unregulated market, something Kat taught me that was so valuable. It is not a black market. It's terrible. It's an unregulated market. That is not good for anybody physically, mentally, socially, financially at all. Why is, is there still an illicit tobacco, an illicit alcohol market in the state of California? Very, very minimally. Do we have bootleggers? Do we have moonshine productions? Unless it's in jail, not really. It's because the regulated market for those products work. The question would always be, should we allow 
to even sell THC potency products above 70%. We don't allow sales of alcohol above a certain amount of proof. We don't allow sales of cigarettes to have certain percentages of nicotine at the highest level that we can actually make known demand. So we don't. So my question is why it should be regulated, because it is the right thing to do. It actually creates a society that limits the kind of problems we get from an unregulated market. All right, thank you. Potency, very important. You don't want to maybe get too high. Kat, do you have any other uh, concerns about what, why you might want to shop at a, a legal store as opposed to an illegal store? Yeah, I think that part of what we've recognized is that you know even these jurisdictions that are banning uh, cannabis aren't actually banning cannabis, they're banning legal cannabis. Cannabis is still existing in their communities. And if cannabis is gonna exist in your community, and it is, and it does, uh, there, should, there should be some decision making on the front end to ensure that you're getting good operators, people who are gonna follow the rules, people who are gonna follow these standards. Uh, and many of these standards aren't unique to the cannabis industry. There are normal uh, safety protocols, for example, that we want anyone who's gonna set up shop uh, to go visit their local fire department, to go visit their department of building and safety so someone doesn't walk into a facility and walls crumble, right? Uh, there are uh, measures put in place to make sure that uh, employees uh, and folks who are uh, in these facilities are, are being treated well uh, and are being held to appropriate labor and workforce standards. Uh, we want there to be good neighbors. We want people to uh, be employing folks from the community. But these are just some regular business practices that aren't even necessarily unique to cannabis uh, that by creating a framework where we're identifying standards and then holding people accountable to those standards, uh, the intention is to have uh, tangible positive outcomes uh, through drawing a line in the sand uh, and saying, this is how you do this in a more responsible manner. The people who are doing this in a more responsible manner, we want to reward. Uh, and the folks who aren't, uh, we want to draw a line and say, those are the folks, the shops that you should not frequent. Right. You don't want the walls to fall down. You don't want uh, labor exploited, right? All the legal shops in LA are unionized. Mm -hmm. um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Brad, do you have anything else to add? I was just going to say, I, I, I think it's just great that we have legal cannabis that it's not illegal. Sure. And there are a lot of people who are not behind bars today that would have been otherwise with, uh, when, it, when it was, well, it's still a schedule on drug, but um, uh, it's not being treated that way in, 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 in several states across, there are still states where you can get picked up and get put in jail, get put in prison for, for possession or for trafficking of cannabis. And I, I, I think I've, I forget that sometimes being here in California, but it is different in different places. Um, so I think that's important. But I also think that uh, from a criminal justice perspective, um, as far as large organizations that are uh, growing, trafficking, running illicit operations, we just don't like large illicit operations sure. of any Should kind. Should we be supporting cartels it's, with our tax dollars? Uh, whether it's cartels or it's just, you know, anyone who's running a large operation and making money off the books, they have, uh, they have to uh, sort of handle their disputes extra ju judicious, uh, judicially. Mm. Um, they have to ha carry weapons. Um, and they also, uh, they're paying off officials. Someone, yeah. someone has to turn an eye. So they're corrupting uh, your, your public officials or your law enforcement officers. And so we just don't like those kinds of businesses around. So the fact that it is licensed and we are now pushing that business towards the licensed and regulated market is, is right. a criminal justice win. Right. So I guess I would also add from the consumer standpoint, California actually has one of the most robust 
consumer safety regulatory programs for cannabis products of any legal state. It's California and Oregon by far. And you might think, well, cannabis is safe. I could buy a joint in any part of the country, and that's fine. But these higher potency pro uh, products that Dr. Fong was talking about um, are made through industrial processes that can introduce all kinds of safety issues uh, from lighter fluid being used to make a product to the pesticides that were put on the plant originally. And we're not talking about should you get the organic apple or the regular apple at the supermarket. We're talking about pesticides that are known to be harmful, that are not meant to be used on anything consumed by humans. We know they have carcinogens. We know they have neurotoxins in them. Then those are being concentrated and being put into What's the biggest story that's happened in cannabis in the last six months? Vape pens, okay? If you want to look for any reason why a consumer, maybe you don't care about supporting good labor, maybe you don't care about you know, keeping your money in an ethical you know, place away from criminals, you should care about your own physical health and safety, or I might hope that other people would care about those things. Uh, and you, know, you could easily be a victim of this vaping lung illness if you buy a vape pen at an illicit cannabis store, because those are the people who are not monitoring what goes in their products. And when you go to the legal store, there is a really robust system making sure that those um, products are safe. So that's a really you know, big motivator for me as a consumer to go to legal stores. And I, I add two things. Uh, another perfect example. When you walk into a store that's regulated, there's a bud tender. When you walk into an unregulated store, there's a bud tender as well. One of the things we looked at at the UCLA Cannabis Research Initiative is what is the proper training for a bud tender? We have bartending, we have cosmetology, we have massage therapists. Everyone goes through a state licensing system. We don't have that yet for bud tenders. We need that. We absolutely need that. Um, and I think about in a regulated market, you want a bud tender to be there who's trained, who can spot signs of harm, who can educate the public properly to what's a safe use, what's a good use. We have patients all the time that I just need something to go to sleep. And I say to them, how did you get this particular strain? Well, that's what the bud tender recommended. I said, did the bud tender go to four years of medical school and four years of residency to get that prescription recommendation? No, they looked it up on Leafly. That's a problem. Number two, and you highlighted so well, the vape pen crisis, the oils that have been attached to it, the now nearly over 50 deaths in America, the over 1,500 cases of pulmonary injuries, uh, or direct result from vaping, not all of it from THC vape, some of them are from nicotine vape. Again, unregulated cartridges. And I actually had a friend who was in the business of making these unregulated cartridges. I said to him, how do you do it? Uh, it was in the valley, everything's in the valley. <laughs> it was in the valley, a small little apartment. Uh, he would open up a bunch of different chemicals and they literally would pour it into a pot. He would stir it up, and like a scene out of Breaking Bad, he'd put on the sterile suit, and he'd pour out the juice into containers and pipetted it into the thing. I said to him, did you get any training? He's like, yeah, the guy told me how to pour it out into the juice. Uh, it's not funny. It's not Scary. funny. But that's an unregulated market, and that's unfortunately what then lands onto the stores, because they get the fancy packaging, and they get the, the bun tender saying, we just got a fresh shipment of this. We know it's great. You're going to love it. And that does not happen in any regulated market. 
for alcohol or tobacco. Can you imagine that for alcohol? Yeah. That would be prohibition, and that's what we learned from the prohibition well, era. I want to add on public safety, and you're talking about, I think you're talking about butane honey oil, yeah, butane yeah. processing. So they use certain chemicals to extract the, the THC from the plant. Um, to put it uh, into, it's usually not done on a, you know, in a kitchen and stirred that way. But um, when the process is done, uh, there have been a lot of cases of explosions right. and problems for the fire department. Uh, police departments are happier when we have uh, these licensed operations because there are cameras in every corner. Anyone who comes or goes is on camera. When you walk in, you show your ID, not once, but twice. You're on, you know, you're on the computer system. So everything is tracked that happens in those facilities. And we're seeing across the country, when you're near a licensed dispensary or a retail outlet, um, the, 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 the crime in those neighborhoods is going down. Because in those immediate areas, uh, there are a lot of people coming and going. There's a lot of attention. And it's, um, you know, it's just been, it's been I think, really a, a benefit for uh, for public safety, and, and I, I think law enforcement is starting to see that and get behind it. Not everywhere, yeah, but they're getting there. Yeah. All right. So I have a question uh, for Kat, and I think Brad, maybe you have some context that you can. And don't worry, I've got another question for you after this. All right, and you can chime in if you want, but I'm, you know. Uh, so, Kat, I was so a quick update, right, about these who's legal and who's not legal. We've got this nearly 200 stores that were grandfathered in that pressured the city, blah 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 those guys. Then we got all these other stores that are trying to get legal. And the city is prioritizing, again, this social equity program. There's this whole process of them trying to get legal. And then just in the last two months, two months, that process has been frozen by some nefarious accusations. And now an audit by the mayor's office. And the whole thing is going to have to be Reviewed and Kat, before I came over here tonight, I was reading, I was rereading your uh, update on what's going on that you emailed out maybe a month ago or something like that. And I noticed that you you mentioned that when you guys were deciding how you were going to do the licenses that you settled on first come first serve, as opposed to a lottery or a merit-based system. And this is something that every community in the country, every state in the country is struggling with because they say, well, we're gonna decide who's the legal cannabis businesses, how do we decide who's legal, and then everywhere sort of comes up with their own system for who gets the licenses and who doesn't get the licenses. And we went with first come, first, come, first serve. Brad, I'm sure you've talked to a bunch of different municipalities about their systems, about whether they wanna do a lottery, first come, first serve, or merit. I guess my question is, why did we do first come, first serve? Because in my mind, that doesn't sound super fair. I'm picturing like I'm trying to buy concert tickets online and it's like mm. my computer gets messed up and then I got shut out. It's like, what? why did we do that? Yeah, uh, I ask myself that question regularly. Oh, bud. Mm. Oh. Um, <laughs> but the, the reality is that uh, the city has a limited uh, number of licenses that are going to be issued. Uh, and it's, a, it's kind of a unique situation to local jurisdictions, I found. Uh, most of the time, part of our challenge is that uh, I struggle sometimes to talk to smaller cities just because they're not having the same issues that we're having to scale. The city of Los Angeles has the same market size as right. the state of and Colorado. And to clarify, the number of licenses was capped in Measure M? No. No. When was who capped the number of licenses? So it's important to to uh, kind measure of make M this being the city the city uh, uh, ballot initiative that passed in 2017, creating the structure that we have now. 
So when the initiative was passed in March of 2017, Measure M, it just created this loose framework and said, we're giving the city the authority to tax, regulate, and license, and these operators are gonna get priority. Sure. Uh, it wasn't until December, so March was when the initiative passed, it wasn't until December of 2017 right. that the city the passed its ordinances uh, saying who was going to get a license, the process that was going to be established so city essentially. Council. Yes. Okay. Uh, it's the city so council. The city council that decided to cap the number of licenses, probably unnecessarily, and to the detriment of the market. So I, I appreciate you making the distinction. I did not make that decision uh, to, to, to cap the. Cat's the in charge of, of everything, so if you want to give her shit later, she'd love to hear it. Yeah, uh, magic wand. No, I think that the, the reality is that uh, many local processes have been very politically driven. Yeah. Uh, and. You do have market actors who are engaging directly with city council and saying, uh, this is what we want to see uh, happen. Uh, and that's part of the reason why these existing operators got priority. Uh, I think a very similar thing happened uh, this year when we were having a conversation about what the appropriate licensing methodology should be specifically for the social equity program. So the council set this cap and said that we're going to allow for one retail facility per 10,000 residents. In a city of upwards of 4 million people, that means that we should have around at least 400 uh, retail licenses. Knowing that the city has peaked at around maybe 1,800 and now we're probably at like 1,000. So with the, let's just call it 200 existing uh, facilities that had been authorized, uh, there was a framework that created space for about 200 to 250 more licenses uh, to be available in the city. Uh, and again, we spent the greater part of, we spent all of 2018 and the greater part of 2019 just trying to figure out what this licensing process was gonna look like for this next round. Uh, and back in February of this year, we approached city council and said, uh, we think that you should consider uh, other methodologies for licensing. And there are generally three licensing methodologies that jurisdictions can choose. First come, first serve, some type of merit or scoring mechanism, or lottery. Uh, and we, we raised a number of, of concerns related to first come, first serve, but there was a group of uh, advocates uh, in the city of Los Angeles who were pushing very heavily for first come, first serve, and I'll tell you why. Uh, part of the reason is that the social equity program as a concept, uh, this idea that we were going to acknowledge the harm that community members, particularly black and brown community members, had experienced uh, and give them some sort of benefit and priority in the licensing process was passed by council in 2017. And as soon as this policy passed, folks recognize, well, we're gonna need a property if we're going to be competitive, because you need a property in order to apply. So many folks went out and secured property, uh, got leases, and then were, had been sitting on those leases all of 2018 when we spent time transitioning the existing market. Uh, and then they're sitting around like, I'm paying rent every single month. Yeah. Uh, we need to get this process started. Uh, and because those people probably uh, felt at that time uh, that if they did a first come first serve process, they were the folks who had property so they were ready to go. So the uh, coming and the first come was when they started paying rent on a property? No, the, the first come first serve was when they submitted an application, mm. but in order to submit an application, yeah, you had to have a property. Yeah. You had to have a property. Yeah. And that wasn't always the case. 
When the ordinance first passed, and this is uh, it's kind of important to make this distinction because the policy has gone back and forth. When the ordinances were first passed, council required a property. And we raised issue and said, well, properties are a barrier to entry. Maybe we need to not require people to have property. And so the city council changed this process and said, okay, folks don't need to have a property. But then there were these contingents. Uh, uh, there was a, a group of folks who said, but we have property. <laughs> We have property, and we, we, we are the ones who have been expending uh, resources uh, for months. So we need to have a process that's for the people who do have property. Uh, and so there was this back and forth, and uh, ultimately, uh, despite us recommending other licensing methodologies, a decision was made uh, largely uh, because of community uh, demanding this. Uh, that we went and city council uh, established a first-come, first first-served process. So again, that was city council that decided it was going to be first-come, first-served? Correct. Okay. And so this was in April of this year. Uh, in April of this year, the city council amended its process to say, we're going to have first-come, first-serve. Uh, the kind of compromise that was made at the time was that they were going to bifurcate licensing for retail into two separate rounds. The first round would be for 100 licenses for folks who had property, and the second round was going to be for an additional, those remaining 150 licenses for folks who did not have property. Uh, and so we moved forward with this first-come, uh, first first-served process uh, that was executed beginning on September 3rd, uh, and uh, during the implementation of that process, we had uh, a number of issues. Uh, that were related to that process. And so that's, that's part of the reason why there's this audit that's been uh, called. Right. There, to clarify, there are allegations that some people got access to the online system before other people got access, and so they obviously were coming faster in that first come, first serve, and they, you know, you know, like when me and the concert tickets, these are the people with the American Express card who go in first and get the tickets before I can go in the normal thing. Yeah, I mean, and there are a number of important issues that I think were raised by community members. Uh, throughout this process. Folks in South LA have acknowledged that there are slower internet speeds right. uh, in South Los Angeles uh, than there may be in other parts of the city. Uh, the reality is that uh, you know, just your ability to use a computer uh, could yeah. be uh, a barrier to entry to folks. And I've been looking at other uh, processes, whether they be merit, lottery, first come, first serve, and there are pros and cons to each. I was sure. made aware that there was a local jurisdiction in uh, Nevada that had first come, first serve, and they physically require people to stand in line. I like that. Uh, I like and that. So it was kind of Sleep like outside, Hunger Games. It's always back to the concert yeah. tickets. Uh, to, to Wait, exactly. but so, Brad, tell, riddle me this, because yeah. my general sense is that the fairest system is the lottery. Yeah. If you, if you have to cap licenses, which I think is generally not a good idea, I mean, Colorado sort of let the market do its thing, which is they ballooned up to like 900 stores, and then eventually, I don't know if it was stores or business, but then they eventually went down to the normal amount of four or 500. Like, the city figured out... The, Remember, the that's state, a state. Right, sorry. The state figured and out... Most states don't have How many... Mm. Sure. Well, having, Western states. Right. Once you've got the cap, then it becomes oh, I've got this thing, who's going to get the influence to get the thing, and who's got the money to get the thing? And so, but am I correct in... Right, so a lottery system is probably the most democratic. Okay. Except for just completely allowing, having no cap, and allowing anyone to open a business. Right. Okay. Uh, that's, in, you know, the state of Oklahoma has more dispensaries than we have, I believe, in the entire state of California. Yeah. 
Well, so, Oklahoma's, there's a no, whole other, Oklahoma's I mean, Oklahoma. Oklahoma is LA 15 years right. ago, so let's see what happens with them. But, but I think I want to wrap this up with the question that I started with for Kat, which is who benefits from the status quo? Who is benefiting right now other than this group of disproportionately wealthy white business owners who have the only legal businesses, but those people are going to complain to you about how hard it is because the illicit market is stealing uh, their customers because they don't have to pay taxes, and they're also right about that. And yeah, I mean, I, I am genuinely curious. Who, who is benefiting here, and why is this being uh, protracted for so long? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the people who have benefited the most have been consultants, attorneys. Uh, consultants? In this, in this space. Uh, to, to be honest, because part of the program, yeah, yeah Brad, it's true. Brad, it's true. Uh, guys, it's true. it was Brad in the drawing room it, with the lead it was, pipe. It was all yeah. me. <laughs> it was all me. Uh, the the reality is that, and, and it, it needs to be kind of set on the record because folks can kind of point to various social equity programs that are in the process of being implemented across the country and say uh, these programs are failing. And I think that that's an unfair assessment because the reality is that these programs weren't resourced. Yeah when they needed to be. Yeah. Uh, and because of the lack of resourcing, we've had this weird and contorted way that we've had to try and implement uh, programs. And the social equity program was kind of based on two tenets. One, people having priority processing to market. And priority processing to market is critical if there's a closed market, because being the first to market could mean that you're the only person. Right. They get, you're among the only people who get to market. Uh, and then the other part of this was the support that these applicants, uh, recognizing that they uh, come from vulnerable communities, that there is, uh, there, there's a need to have support to level the playing field, and that support takes resources and it takes time uh, to build those programs. And in absence of those programs being available, you have the people who are able to be successful despite those programs, AKA the well-resourced, right. who are able to move forward. So, Part of what uh, I've assessed thus far, and, and I think that uh, the, the challenge that governments face is, you know, if, even if they can divorce themselves from their political nature uh, in, in that, uh, governments still do have an interest in having the best operators yeah. uh, in, in their city. And so that could lend to wanting to have some type of merit-based uh, program. Um, but if I had a chance to kind of start this process over, uh, and as I engage with other regulators and kind of learn from our experiences, I kind of like the idea of a hybrid of, of merit and lottery. Yeah. Uh, because the reality is that when you're talking about a limited market, first of all, we're talking about the drug war, right? And tens of thousands, hundreds of tens of thousands of people just in the city of Los Angeles were impacted by the drug war. We can't talk about rectifying the harms of the drug war when we're only talking about a program that's going to benefit 400 people. That's not real repair, right? Um, and so the challenge that I've faced in this space is that uh, I almost wish that we wouldn't have called it a social equity program because yeah. that's kind of misleading to communities to make it seem as though there's going to be equity that's created just by right. 400 people uh, being able to individually profit from an industry. Uh, the reality is that we, we have to define equity beyond licensing because yeah. uh, there's only a certain pool of people who are going to be impacted by licensing. There's a larger group of people who are going to be benefited by employment opportunities. Uh, but the real equity comes in where these tax dollars Right. Uh, are going and making sure that communities are invested in because maybe someone who's been impacted by the drug war doesn't want to open up a cannabis shop. 
maybe they want to open up a salon or maybe they want to start a nonprofit or uh, maybe they just want to go back to school because they were denied the opportunity to uh, pursue their student loans. Yeah. Um, but for me, what I've learned thus far and as I engage with other uh, regulators in this space, I like the idea of, merit, uh, of, of marrying merit plus lottery yeah. because it allows us to, we still want to bring on good operators. So if we have a merit-based program and can figure out some scoring system to make sure that we're bringing on good operators and say, everybody who scores above, above an 80 yeah. gets entered into a lottery, sure. right? And mm. then there's a way for us to identify who the winners are before we have hundreds of people take financial risk. Right. Uh, and so that is the lesson that I learned. Uh, it's, I don't think that it's too far too late in the city uh, because I do think that there's still an opportunity for even the caps to be expanded, but yeah. uh, that's an ongoing conversation. But I, I try think I to need be... to cut you off because we've got to do questions. Yes. But I want to quickly, you know, if you came into this conversation knowing nothing about what's going on with cannabis in Los Angeles, I hope you're a little bit more educated at this point, but also that you understand it's extremely complicated. We haven't even scratched the surface of the details of what's actually going on, <laughs> and uh, it's messier than you think. And I'm sad I, I have another question for you, but I think we should open it up to audience questions. Hi, my name is Kim, and um, I've been following this for a few years as well, and it was actually one of the best businesses, particularly for women, to be first-time owners in because the investment was lower and a lot of them could afford it. So, of course, it's going to have to shut down. Um, but in the meantime, all this illicit stuff, it's actually kind of being forced to be illicit because of the way the regulations are and the prohibitive licensing. And what's happening now is all these little dispensaries that were doing well and providing a real service are getting shut down some for being illicit. They've been forced to be illicit because there's nowhere to go. So how do we fix that? How do we keep those smaller dispensaries, mom and pop shops, so to speak, from being taken over by corporations who can afford the legal fees. You know, the, exactly what you're saying is exactly what um, Kat's been trying to do in her work for the past couple of years and what the city is, you know, struggling to, to realize in a lot of details. And I think, yeah, right? I, think, I mean, One, I think pretty much everything that we spoke to tonight has to do with how can we make this, um, this industry easier for, for small businesses um, run by, uh, by people from marginalized communities. Hi, my name is Allison. Uh, so I came here by way of Denver originally, and I voted no because I read through all the measures and it was a dumpster fire. So why would I, you know, as a supporter and advocate for... We're talking about Prop 64 or Measure M? Both. Oh, great. Well, yeah, because simply because, like, there's, there was no information that was clear for consumers on where this was going to go, where the tax money was going to go. So my question is really... Will this not take a systemic overhaul of the bureaucracy for the city of Los Angeles and the state of California to put people in play in city councils to educate them, to have them understand the bigger picture of what they're doing, rather than being allowed to say, well, I think it's this, or I think it's that. They are, in a way, uneducated about it, so why are they the ones who are making the decisions? And I found this to be very interesting, moving from Ohio to Los Angeles, but some of our city council members are still relatively conservative uh, and not progressive, and that's very strange to me. To also, wait, don't, don't we still have a city council member who was just raided by the FBI a couple months ago? I'm not gonna comment on that one. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> above my pay grade. 
Uh, but I think that you're right. There, there's still this stigma, even when approaching cannabis. I, I tell this ironic story about even when we were going to create the department, I had to go to our Office of Information Technology, and they said, what do you want to name the website? I said, cannabis.lacity.org. They said, oh my goodness, you can't name it cannabis. I'm like, what am I going to, this is what we're talking about, right? But just that level of concern uh, was very telling to me. And I do think that there needs to be, one, cannabis consumers and people who care about this issue need to vote, right? And people need to be reminded that people who care about this issue do vote. Uh, but I think that part of what you're talking about, particularly around this tax issue, there's going to need to be a massive overhaul because many jurisdictions, like Brad said, uh, they were thinking about this, about the dollar signs, and people already had that money spent before any of those money came, monies came into the coffers. Uh, and so I do think that there's going to need to be a, an overhaul. Uh, the challenge is because you have local control, there need to be like 700 overhauls. Right. And I think uh, or the state needs to... I think in the last three years, we've seen like a really big um, movement towards people becoming more politically involved and aware. But I think a lot about that has been focused on the national scene. And I would encourage you know everyone who's here tonight to pay more attention to what's going on locally, what's going on with the mayor, what's going on with city council, uh, and to think more about holding those folks accountable. So I think one of the things that we're seeing that's a problem, uh, a lot of these bugs from Prop 64, are, we're becoming aware of them. Uh, including this most current round with CDTFA needing to uh, increase the amount of the, the, uh, the, the section between the distributors going to the retailers from 60% to 80%. Brad's referring to a major tax rise that goes into effect on January 1st for yeah. the cannabis industry as determined by a state tax agency. So, so these, uh, these things are built into Prop 64, which was voted on by the public. So we can't just unring that bell. Uh, could we undo it and replace it with something else that would probably require another ballot initiative? Uh, what we're seeing in a lot of different cities, though, if they're not getting what they want from their representatives, and this is just what we do in democracy, there are people coming in and replacing those councilmen. And we've seen city after city after city flip from, you know, the four councilmen no and three yes to, you know, flipping it the other way. Um, so it's happening slowly, but it is a democratic process, like Kat was saying. And the term we've been using at UCLA is um, supporting science-based legislation, science-based regulation. But when you can't do the science because you have barriers to research, it's very difficult to do that. For me, uh, again, when I first got into this work, I made my mark originally, again, on substances, alcohol, amphetamine, opioids, and never was criticized. As soon as Dr. Chen and I started to create a UCLA cannabis research program, there were a lot of no. There were a lot of where are you going to get your money from? There were a lot of you must be on the take from the cannabis industry. You must be pro-cannabis. So it's even a struggle for physicians at UCLA where we have the only agenda being solutions and objective research. What I caution people to think about is we did not see the opioid epidemic coming. We didn't. Y2K, we didn't see it. We didn't see it. So our concern about all what we're talking about here tonight, when you have sloppy regulation that's right at the edges, that isn't proper, isn't universal, in 15 years from now, will we be talking about the cannabis epidemic? Will we be talking about the damage that our cities have endured because of unscientific-based regulation? Just in the area of addiction, if you increase the rate of addiction of cannabis by just 1% of the population, 
talking about hundreds of thousands of lives are disproportionately affected and damaged. And those lives, of course, will still be ethnic minorities. Mm -hmm. When we talk about the young people, about consuming cannabis at a very young age, and first generation, what we call cannabis natives, the generation that are growing up with cannabis being mainstream. That's my kids, that's our kids. And I tell them very simply, I have a very simple mantra, no cannabis until you're 21. That's science, but that isn't fully, fully accepted. So uh, I just want to thank you for that comment, and that's exactly the kind of work that we're looking to do. So, doctor, I'm so grateful for you to bring bringing up the health issue. Um, I'm really uh, proud of our Surgeon General, who's Dr. Jerome Adams. I think um, Kat probably is a fan of his as well, because the whole point is um, he's pointing out that you know preg shouldn't be used during pregnancy and shouldn't be used for the developing brain. So uh, my question is, uh, by the way, Kat, I, I really appreciate you mentioning uh, social justice, doing more than you get a shop, you know, because that's a kind of a squirrely way to look at social justice. I want to really put kudos out to you. Social justice is open the store you want, not, not that. So my question to you is, um, now that the Surgeon General has spoken for the first time since 1982 about the health risks and who's at risk for that, is that going to be included in our, on the legal stores? Will they have a notice of that? There's already a required notice that comes uh, from the state uh, on all legal cannabis products. If, if I'm, am yeah, I correct? There, there, there are notices that are specifically required to be on cannabis products. I've seen a couple of specific notices on uh, facilities, but I think that part of what you talked about earlier is gonna be critically important with just education and training. Uh, one of the things, and this doesn't exist yet, but we're actively trying to get this set up. I'd love to be able to work directly with UCLA to figure it out, because you all are the experts. Uh, but we need to have responsible vendor training. Uh, we've been in communication with people who do prevention work and, and people who are the subject matter experts because folks really do need to be trained uh, before they're telling people who could be chronically ill uh, what type of products they should be using and some of the risks that are associated uh, with these products. We're not there yet. I think that there was a lot of education that we should have done on the front end. Right. Uh, and these, these were things that policymakers just didn't think about. Like we should have had a, a, a budget for a public information campaign that could have been rolled out on January 1st of 2018. If not January 1st of 2018, at least 420 of 2018, <laughs> right? But we're, we're just now getting these resources in this fiscal year, and so bureaucracy can be slow, but we have to be more intentional with our design. Yeah. So it's also, would, it's also about how you collect your data. So a lot of time we talk about prevalence of use, and we say, oh, the teens in Colorado, prevalence of use is going down, and adults are using a little bit more, they're drinking less. So we kind of look at those base numbers, and those are based on surveys that say, have you used in the last month, have you used in the last year? What they don't tell you though, and this is, this is uh, part of, of what he's bringing up about what we're thinking about over the UCLA Cannabis Research Initiative, is since the early 90s to today, the number of uh, daily, near daily users has gone up over five times. It's starting with a very small number, but it has grown five times or more since the early 90s. And so where are we right now? We have people who are being initiated, uh, their, their first cannabis they're ever smoking is closer to 20% rather than 4%. And we know that stronger THC tends to have a, 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 a correlation with um, greater propensity towards dependence on, on THC. So um, 
I'm certainly not a doom and gloomer on, on cannabis. I think there's going to be wonderful opportunities for us to enjoy it safely. And I think we, we, we want to stay focused on it because it's going to be here. But I think we really have to be careful about certain groups that are going to be impacted very heavily um, by the products that are out there and who's consuming them. And, and are, are we collecting the stats to and, try and do something about it? And for me, the most vulnerable individuals in society for cannabis are youth, are people with severe mental illness, uh, and people to whom they're using in a way where cannabis is actually harmful for their primary condition. Our science tells us cannabis works for chronic pain. It works for spasticity related to multiple sclerosis. It works for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. That's it. Now, it can work for a lot of these other things, maybe insomnia, PTSD, bipolar, but we don't have the science to tell us. So we know very, very little. We have a lot of individual stories, but we don't have scientific proof. And on the Medical Board of California, it's a whole other area of regulation we swung and we missed badly. The Medical Board of California 20 years ago, when they said, docs, you can recommend cannabis. Terrific. What condition? They said, any condition a physician believes that the patient would benefit from cannabis from. That means a hangnail. That means glaucoma. That means anal warts. So. The I'm about to plug you. Can I, can I come in? <laughs> the, the point being is, I, we have, as docs, when you ask, what do you think? Is this good for my insomnia? No idea. And that's where the medical education training really lies. So, look, a couple of things. One, because of the federal illegality, that is the reason why you're getting so much disproportionate influence from these bud tenders, the people who are behind the counters giving people advice. It creates all these restrictions that mean the person that's selling you the thing is giving you way, having way too much influence over what you're going to buy and if it's something you're going to use medically. And I hear and totally agree with the concerns that you know medical cannabis ran away with itself. Um, but it's important to know, I think what we were all talking about, right, is to be realistic. And the response isn't, we don't know enough, and don't, we don't know enough yet, so stop legalization and ban it. The response should be, we don't know enough, so let's be as practical as possible with our regulations. And hey, if you have a couple million lying around, the UCLA Cannabis Research Initiative is doing really good work and is one of the few organizations that really is doing very solid research involving cannabis. And so the, the thing should not be, we don't know enough yet, so stop everything in its tracks. It should be, we don't know enough yet, so let's learn as much as we can as we are putting you know, practical um, regulations in place. Uh, I'm going to take one last and question. And I just wanted to clarify when I said daily, near daily users, that's not necessarily the problem. It's the fact that half of them meet the diagnostic criterion for substance abuse disorder. Uh, the process of making marijuana legal is a mess. Uh, now, this isn't the first time in this country's history where we took a product that was widely used illegally and made it legal uh, at the end of prohibition. Uh, and I'm wondering if there's anything we can learn from that or if anyone on the panel could compare what we're going through now with what we went through then. Alcohol was only illegal for, what, 15 years? Something, something like that, right? So we didn't have this many, many decade system entrenched that we have now that's gonna be really difficult to uh, put the toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak. Um, the other thing is that after prohibition, in the like 10 years after alcohol prohibition ended, um, 10 years later, we had only, I think, like five 
alcohol companies controlling like 90% of the market. And don't quote me on those, those are just me remembering, but something to that effect, a very small number of businesses controlled almost the entire market. And I think, especially because of the documented racial disparities and the way that the war on drugs um, has been enforced and continues to be enforced, there is this very present conversation about what we're calling social equity and ways to um, be really conscious about who gets to control the cannabis industry moving forward. And so I think when we look at prohibition uh, ending uh, with alcohol, it's really important to keep in mind that like what ended up happening there is Anheuser-Busch InBev and Molson Coors and like a very small number of mega companies that control the entire market and a lot of people, especially people who are really engaged in, um, I think, cannabis culture and the cannabis industry don't, don't want to see that necessarily. I'm not sure alcohol is the greatest model either. I mean, you know, we've ended up with some benefits from alcohol and people enjoy it, but I mean, look at the social cost, the damage that alcohol causes in society. You know, there's, a lot that is, uh, is, is left to be desired. I with. think it's also easier to grow your own cannabis than it is <laughs> to make bathtub gin, yeah. which is, which is yeah. going to be a problem moving forward as we try and, you know, what is that going to look like in 20 years if we have federal legalization? Are you going to be able to grow your own, you know, and if you aren't able to grow your own, it's going to be really hard as it has been, you know, yeah. during prohibition to enforce that. I mean, the big weed industry, as we call it, you compare it to like big pharma, big food, big tobacco, big alcohol, it's very, very different. Because of the Schedule One, that means we as an academic center cannot partner with anyone who makes their money from the cannabis industry. And the term is actually, we would then be aiding and abetting someone violating federal law. So that prevents our research from working with the corporate responsible people from understanding their product, doing R&D research, doing understanding how to mitigate uh, problems from their product. We've learned a lot from the gambling uh, world uh, in partnering with casinos and understanding responsible gaming practices, uh, developing self-exclusion from casinos to ban yourself from, from not hiding from the world what you actually do, what actually goes into your product. Big Tobacco for years hid the fact, of course, that their product was addictive and caused cancer. This isn't what Big Weed is doing. They're just not even able to talk to us. So, that is the number one lesson, is that these very viable companies that employ hundreds and thousands of people have to be put onto the table as partners and not as, quote, criminal elements right now or people who are violating federal code. And essentially, until Schedule 1 goes away, we can't build those partnerships. We can't build those stakeholders between public, private, university, nonprofit, and communities, and I think that's really the way it would work. And just quickly, Schedule Ones, we've referenced it a ton of times, but in case you're not aware, that is uh, under the Controlled Substances Act. Schedule One uh, is no medical benefit and the highest potential for abuse, right? Which is where cannabis is, which is where heroin, in, heroin is. Fun fact, cocaine, Schedule Two. We also don't have to license this way. Uh, there are states that can do grow and give. Uh, there are states that could do cannabis clubs like they have in Portugal and Spain. We don't have to do this as for-profit, fully marketed product. Um, you know, granted, there aren't going to be the big winners, but you can still decriminalize and you can allow people a decent amount of access um, by allowing them to, to do this in ways that are not, I mean, basically we're doing the alcohol model, we're doing the tobacco model now. And so. here's, here's a radical concept. Uh, you could also have state-controlled models uh, where the government is the only producer and seller. This is models that exist in Canada. Uh, but 
I've been toying with the idea, we're not going to do this in the city of Los Angeles, so don't panic. Um, where the government owns the store. Right. Yeah. Uh, but the, I, I think that that may actually be the most equitable model yeah. uh, in a sense because you're not just talking about the city getting a certain tax revenue uh, or the state getting a certain tax revenue. They get all the revenue. Okay. But and then there's ways for it to be uh, distributed in equitable there's ways. There's a small town in Washington State that tried this. Yeah. I wrote about it like a year and a half ago. How'd I went up go? there. I met the mayor that made it happen. In the next election, the mayor got ousted, new mayor. That mayor didn't want to be involved in the cannabis business, and so it was a mess. And mm. So that's, I think that's the other problem with a business. It's not like every couple of years you reelect a new CEO. Yes. With the local government or with the state government, you know, you change who's in charge, suddenly they don't want to be in the cannabis business Social anymore. experiments. Yeah. Well, we are about out of time. Actually, we're really out of time. But before we close, on behalf of Socolo Public Square, I would like to again thank our co-presenter at UCLA. And I also want to thank all of you for joining us. Please stay for our reception and continue the conversation. It'll be right over here in the back of the space. Uh, and finally, please give us another huge round of applause for our guests.